This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is deepening discipleship through obedience. In the first half, Scott D. Whiting speaks on deepening discipleship. Then in the second half, Cheryl C. Lant shares her address, Hold Tight to the Iron Rod. My dear brothers and sisters, it is indeed an honor to speak to you today. As a young boy, I watched basketball games played at the Marriott Center and often dreamed of suiting up and running out onto that storied floor. Sadly, my basketball skills never elevated to the level needed for such an opportunity. So predictably, that dream faded and then died. You can imagine my excitement several months ago when I received the assignment to speak at this devotional. While I knew that I would be suited up in a different way than I had once imagined, and that I would likely stroll and not run out onto the floor, at least I would be in the dreamed-of location. Alas, that brief dream also evaporated under current conditions, so I come to you from a small, empty auditorium located on the ground floor of the church office building. Nevertheless, I am humbled by this opportunity to speak to you and recognize your goodness, your academic achievements, your honor and integrity, and your so very bright futures. How can one speak at a BYU devotional in December and not focus on our Savior, Jesus Christ? He must be our focus, not just in December, but throughout every month, every week, and every day. Indeed, He will be the focus of my remarks as we explore what it means to be His disciples— and what we can do to deepen our discipleship. The Bible Dictionary defines a disciple as a pupil or learner, explaining that the term also refers to all followers of Jesus Christ. Other dictionaries also add to this explanation, helping us to understand that a disciple is one who is under the care of a teacher. I like that concept. I like the thought of being under the care of Jesus Christ. You might note that the definition of disciple requires action by those desiring to be so defined. For example, a pupil, by definition, is a student who is enrolled, is engaged, and carries a certain status. Similarly, learner is not a passive designation or role. A learner is someone who is still, frankly, learning, someone who has not yet arrived at full knowledge and understanding— but recognizes that additional effort is required to gain the desired knowledge. Important for all of us to understand is that a learner is someone who still has questions that are yet unanswered and hopes to find answers as he or she continues to learn. Sadly, some desire all answers without expending the required patience, effort, and diligence— When they don't have the answers or understanding of some of life's questions, they fall into what some call a crisis of faith. However, as a friend once told me, the path of discipleship is not a linear path stretching in a straight line from point A to point B. Rather, the path of discipleship has both its high and low points. Instead of seeing the low points as crises, We can instead consider them as part of the journey that we all must travel. Even the original twelve disciples had their high and low moments, moments that were part of their journey. However, 
that journey solidified their discipleship as they continued as learners under the care of their master teacher. From these definitions and examples, and the reality of the ups and downs we personally experience as we are tried and tested on the road of discipleship, we see that a disciple of Jesus Christ must be actively engaged, patient in the process, sufficiently humble, dedicated to the Savior, and filled with faith that the Master Teacher is leading us in the right direction. As we walk the path of discipleship, it is important to remember that disciples are to learn as God intended, line upon line, precept upon precept, and that He will try you and prove you herewith. No one ever said that discipleship would be an easy or brief journey with no obstacles. If it were, there would be little growth or development of the disciple. While a disciple is undergoing that development, the most important thing he or she can do is to continue on the path of discipleship rather than leave the care of the teacher. Leaving the care of the master teacher renders us vulnerable to the philosophies of men and those who teach, eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God. He will justify in committing a little sin, yea, lie a little, Take the advantage of one because of his words. Dig a pit for thy neighbor. There is no harm in this. And do all these things, for tomorrow we die. Of such, Nephi warns, There shall be many which shall teach after this manner, false and vain and foolish doctrines, and shall be puffed up in their hearts, and shall seek deep to hide their counsels from the Lord. And their work shall be in the dark. My dear brothers and sisters, we cannot afford to leave the path of discipleship. We cannot afford to leave the care of our teacher. We learn from the Gospel of John that many of his disciples, meaning his followers, not the twelve, went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The question that Jesus has asked his twelve disciples here is a good one for us to ask ourselves. In your low moments, will you also go away? Or when you don't have yet the answers that you seek, when your friends or even your family have chosen to leave him, when a doubt, whether it be historical, doctrinal, social, or otherwise, enters your mind, will you also go away? And what of the question Simon Peter asked the Lord? To whom shall we go? To whom will you go if you leave? Will you go to those who mock sacred things, who ridicule the prophets, who hurl their digital stones and arrows at those who sound the warning voice, Will you go to the charismatic, the disaffected, the dissident, those seeking company as they wallow in their own inward misery? These are powerful and eternally significant questions. How will you answer them if they come? There are many who would offer to help you off the path in your low moments. Most often, they are seeking to validate their own decisions to leave the path because misery does, in fact, often love company. 
In contrast, Jesus is our example in all things, including of staying on the path. He lived a perfect life. He showed us the perfect example of what a disciple is and how a disciple acts. Was not Jesus a disciple of his father? Was he a pupil? Was he a learner? Was he under the care of a teacher? Clearly, the answer to all these questions is a resounding yes. The scriptures teach us that Jesus received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. We also learn that Jesus grew up with his brethren and waxed strong and waited upon the Lord for the time of his ministry to come. And he served under his father Joseph, and he spake not as other men, neither could he be taught, for he needed not that any man should teach him. It is significant to note that Jesus did not need to be taught by men. He was under the care of his heavenly Father, the only one who could be a teacher to the Son of God. Jesus was a pupil and learner under God's tutelage. Perhaps another title that he can be known by is the Great Disciple. Let's explore his discipleship just a bit more. Some of the first words recorded of Jesus, spoken chronologically, were actually spoken in the council in heaven when he said, Father, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever. The last words of his mortal life were uttered while he was affixed to the cross and said, It is finished. From those words in the pre-mortal life to his last words in mortality, Jesus, the Savior of all humankind, was the consummate disciple of his Father. It wasn't his own will, but the Father's to which he submitted himself. We see that manifest multiple times in the scriptures. Early on, a Book of Mormon prophet prophesied of Jesus that even so he shall be led, crucified, and slain, the flesh becoming subject even unto death, the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father. And then later we read of the fulfillment of that prophecy when he descended from the heavens onto the steps of the temple and bountiful. There he announced, Behold, I am the light and life of the world, and I have drunk out of the bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning." The principles of discipleship and of submitting one's own will seem to be important companions. When the scriptures speak of will, our minds turn to the doctrine of agency. Agency is the ability and privilege God gives us to choose and to act for ourselves. The scriptures teach us that men and women are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient unto man. And they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. For he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. Our will or agency is truly ours to do with as we choose. It is a gift from a loving Heavenly Father, and he honors that gift. In the council in heaven— he allowed us to choose His plan as advocated by His firstborn in the Spirit and only begotten Son in the flesh, 
or to choose to follow Lucifer, who rebelled against the Father and his plan. A significant difference between these two choices hinged upon agency. Under the Father's plan, agency would be honored. In contrast, choosing to follow Lucifer would violate the doctrine of agency. In one of the great ironies of all time, God allowed all, even those who didn't want agency in their mortal life, to exercise their agency in this grand council, thereby forever removing themselves, by their own choice, from the presence of the Father and the Son. The fact that our Heavenly Father allowed one-third part of His children to make this choice powerfully reinforces how He honors this gift. It is ours to do with as we choose, albeit not without resultant consequences. With that understanding, we can more deeply understand the significance of the message recently given to us by our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. President Nelson taught us a powerful concept that he, too, had just learned. It was regarding an additional and significant meaning of the name Israel. You will remember when he taught us that, quote, With the help of two Hebrew scholars— I learned that one of the Hebraic meanings of the word Israel is, let God prevail. Thus, the very name of Israel refers to a person who is willing to let God prevail in his or her life, End quote. The connection to our topic today is that in order to deepen our discipleship, we must be willing to let God prevail more fully in our lives. As Jesus teaches us so poignantly through his own discipleship to the Father, we must each exercise our agency and subordinate our will to the will of the Master Teacher. This is a sign of a true disciple. So how do we let God prevail? How do we submit our will to his? How do we deepen our discipleship? This Christmas season, I encourage you to give a gift to your Master Teacher— the gift of increased effort to allow God to prevail in your life and thereby to deepen your discipleship to Him. Each of the following five steps will require that you give Him the only thing that is truly yours to give, your will. First, obedience. The Scriptures teach us that He that receiveth my law and doeth it, the same is my disciple. In other words, without obedience to the teacher, we cannot be his disciples. When we think of obedience, perhaps we err in focusing only on the big commandments, which are certainly necessary and should, frankly, be largely automatic for us. However, to deepen our discipleship, we need to consider and be mindful of those commandments that are truly character-shaping and that bring us closer to the master teacher. For example, the commandment to love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, is filled with discipleship-deepening direction. Given that this is a BYU devotional, another example is the honor code, which is not a commandment of God, but it is a commitment that you have made. Whether you fully understand the reasons behind elements of the honor code is less an issue than being a man or woman of your word. You committed to live by the honor code as a condition of enrollment. 
personal integrity demonstrated by being a man or woman of your word is an important element of the law of obedience and is a means of deepening your discipleship. Second, endurance. The Savior taught that if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples. Discipleship requires not only an understanding of the teachings of the Master, but also perseverance and endurance as you walk the path of discipleship. You will remember that the doctrine of Christ includes the essential element of enduring to the end. Years ago, when I was a young bishop, I marveled at the fact that a couple desiring to be sealed would, after that sealing, have completed all of the necessary ordinances to return to God. This was accomplished often at a relatively young age. The remaining requirement for them was to endure to the end. So it seems that enduring is not an afterthought to the ordinances of the covenant path. It is the work of a lifetime. We endure as we keep the covenants we have made with God. This includes continuing to exercise faith in Jesus Christ, repenting daily, always being worthy to hold, and then holding a current temple recommend, accepting and fulfilling callings and assignments, continuing in your own personal worship, and joining in public devotion. Third, remember those in need. We learn in the scriptures that we are to remember in all things the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. For he that doeth not these things, the same is not my disciple. In the new general handbook of the church, we learn that as we come unto Christ and help others do the same, we participate in God's work of salvation and exaltation. The work of salvation and exaltation focuses on four divinely appointed responsibilities, one of which is caring for those in need. You will remember that King Benjamin gave a powerful discourse to his people and ultimately to us on the importance of caring for those in need. He taught, Ye yourselves will succor those that stand in need of succor. Ye will administer of your substance unto him that standeth in need. And ye will not suffer that the beggar putteth up his petition to you in vain, and turn him out to perish. He reminded us that we are all beggars, and that we all call on the Lord for a remission of our sins. I love his final words on the matter when he taught, I would that ye should impart of your substance to the poor, every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. At present, many of you may feel that you are of one of those who are in need. I remember my own days as a struggling student. I remember thinking as my wife and I went grocery shopping that we couldn't afford flavor. The bland and flavorless seemed more within our budget. We did our best, but struggled to make ends meet. I remember a studio apartment we lived in that was so small, I could answer the door, open the refrigerator, and flush the toilet, all without leaving our double bed. However, even as you struggle through school, you can help to ease the burdens of others through service and sacrifice. Your contributions may be small, but remember the poor widow observed by Jesus who, 
threw in two mites, which make a farthing, for all they did cast in of their abundance. But she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. It is not the amount that you contribute that matters. It is the sacrifice you give that invites the Lord's blessings into your life. This dear widow's sacrifice was without equal when compared to the great abundance from which other offerings were given. You may feel like the poor widow, but you will not always be without abundance and eventually will likely be able to offer more. But then and now, even if you don't have an abundance, you can always help those in need. Fourth, service and good works. Jesus taught that, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye may bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. One way to bear fruit in the gospel is to provide service and good works. Your generation excels in this area. I think of former efforts under the Mormon Helping Hands banner, and now with Just Serve, you have responded wonderfully to the call to serve your fellow men and women, and you have accomplished much good. I invite you to find a way to sustain or even increase your efforts, particularly during this time of year. At Christmas time, I know that it is easy to get caught up in the what's in this for me mindset and to ask, who will give me gifts and what will I receive? Frankly, as we mature in life and in the gospel and as we deepen our discipleship, our mindsets should shift more toward what can I give and to whom. This is how a disciple of the Master would view the season. He or she focuses much more outwardly than inwardly. As we focus outwardly, we come to know our Savior more fully because we are beginning to think and act as He did. He thought only of others, and as our Master disciple, He is the optimal example for us to follow. And finally, fifth, Quoting from both Scripture and my favorite hymn, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. I remember singing this simple hymn to myself every day of my mission. It reminded me that I needed to love those I was called to teach and to see them as their Heavenly Father saw them. Today, amid our contentious times, President Dallin H. Oaks taught, quote, Loving our enemies and our adversaries is not easy. Most of us have not reached that stage of love and forgiveness, President Gordon B. Hinckley observed, adding, It requires a self-discipline almost greater than we are capable of, but it must be essential, for it is part of the Savior's two great commandments, to love the Lord thy God and to love thy neighbor as thyself, end quote. Your efforts to love your fellow men and women will be the hallmark of your efforts to deepen your discipleship. However, I feel it important to caution you not to invert the two great commandments, the first being to love the Lord thy God, and the second to love thy neighbor as thyself. This seems to be an increasing area of confusion and misunderstanding, surely clouded by the adversary. The adversary knows that if he can invert these two great laws in our minds, then he can entice disciples from the path 
and dissuade others from stepping onto that path. We must be careful that in our efforts to love our neighbor, we don't begin advocating against the Lord. Some, in their efforts to love others, feel it necessary to abandon the teachings and commandments of God or to advocate for a change of His doctrine. But to love God is to accept His teachings, commandments, and doctrine. Remember that Jesus taught, If ye love me, keep my commandments. A true disciple does not try to change the teacher, his teachings, nor his laws of discipleship. Jesus warned of this when he taught, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. Brothers and sisters, guard against such subtleties in your efforts to love your neighbor. The adversary will attempt to lead you to believe that you are aligned with the Lord by loving your neighbor in a way that leads you to then question those who have been called to lead and direct his kingdom on earth. You might find that you are then not aligned with those who have properly and correctly prioritized these two great commandments. Those who invert the two put themselves and their neighbors ahead of the Lord, their master teacher, and seek to counsel him and his called leaders. Please guard against this increasingly popular and potentially spiritually fatal deception by remembering that sometimes— The best way to love your neighbor is actually to advocate and stand for the teachings of the Master. In closing, please know that I love you. The words I have offered are an attempt to help bring you nearer your Savior and Redeemer, to bring you into greater proximity to Him, to help you be the righteous and striving disciples favored by Him. This is the greatest gift that I can give to you this Christmas season. It is my sincere prayer that you will make efforts to deepen your discipleship as you reflect on your master teacher this time of year and always, and that you will resolve to continue on the path of discipleship even in your low moments. I pray that you will not abandon the teacher who loves you perfectly and who freely gave of his will in order to fulfill the plan of the Father that we all may be reunited with him again someday. I know that he lives, that he is the master teacher and master disciple. I rejoice that we are under his loving care. I bear witness of these things in his sacred and holy name, even Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Deepening Discipleship Through Obedience. We've just heard from Scott D. Whiting. After the break, we'll return with Cheryl C. Lant for Hold Tight to the Iron Rod. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Deepening Discipleship Through Obedience. Next is Cheryl C. Lant, Primary General President of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled, Hold Tight to the Iron Rod. This morning, I would like to talk about our purpose in life. My purpose and your purpose. 
We usually pause at the beginning of a new year to take stock of where we are in our lives and where we are going, and then we make determinations about what is really important to us and what we need to do. Now, in order to better understand our purpose in life and to start this process of self-evaluation, I would like to refer to the account in the Book of Mormon of Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life. Picture this with me. You will remember that he saw a beautiful tree. The tree bore wonderful fruit. The fruit was white and sweet and desirable to make one happy. He also saw a path. It was a narrow path leading to the tree. The path came across a large and spacious field. Along the path was a rod of iron, and there was also a river running along the path, and on the other side of the river there was a large and spacious building filled with people dressed in the finery of the world. Occasionally a mist of darkness arose from the river and covered the path. He saw people traveling the path, and it appeared that their objective was to reach the tree. But many were distracted or lost. Now, Nephi, Lehi's son, desired to understand his father's vision, and so he went to the Lord and asked to know the meaning of it. The Lord answered Nephi's prayer, and in so doing, not only explained the vision, but explained the purpose of our life here on earth as well. We learn from Nephi's account that the tree or the tree of life, is actually a representation of Jesus Christ. The pure white fruit that comes from the tree and is more desirable than any other fruit to make mankind happy is the atonement of the Savior. The straight and narrow path leading to the tree is the path that we must follow to come to the Savior. It is paved with the covenants and the commandments of the Lord. The rod of iron is the word of God. This rod runs directly parallel and uninterrupted along the path and is designed to bring whoever holds securely to it to the tree. Other parts of the vision represent the opposition we all experience in this life. The large and spacious field is the world in which we live. We all have to pass through it in order to regain the presence of Heavenly Father and the Savior. The river running closely by the path represents the depths of hell. It is ever-present, waiting to claim any who are careless or rebellious. Now, Often, this river sends up mists of darkness which are the temptations of the devil. These myths obscure our vision and make the path seem a little slippery and unsure. On the far side of the river rises the large and spacious building. This, too, represents the temptations of the devil because it is the pride of the world. The building, the mocking people inside, the obvious worldly wealth all beckon to the natural man within each of us. Now, in the vision, Lehi reaches the tree and partakes of the wonderful fruit. Then, more than anything, he wants his family and others to come and partake of it as well. He wants them to find the joy that he has experienced. 
He wants them to come to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And so he beckons to them to enter into the way and follow the path. Some pay no heed, thinking they know a better way, and they are lost in the large field. Others start on the path and then get lost in the midst of darkness, following into the river. Others grasp the rod of iron and carefully follow it through all the distractions and make it to the tree. They partake of the fruit, but then lose faith and, heeding the call of the world, wander off to the great and spacious building. But then there are others who take hold of the rod, diligently and faithfully follow it along until they reach the tree and partake of the fruit. They experience the joy and the blessings of partaking of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, and they never look back. This vision represents the love of God for us. It is Heavenly Father's plan for us to come to this earth, gain our bodies, prove ourselves by accepting the gospel and living righteously, and then, through the Atonement of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, return to Him. It is a representation of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ's love for us. It also gives us a wonderful and a clear purpose to our lives. Now, these images that I have suggested to you today may seem very common. You've heard about them since you were in primary, but they are basic. They are essential for us to not only know but to understand We must clearly understand what they mean for us, how important they are to us, and where we need to go with this understanding. May I also suggest that this is very individual. Not one of us will get to heaven on someone else's coattail. Each must have their own knowledge, their own testimony, and make their own application of these truths. In addition, each of us is at a different place in our lives. We are where we are as a direct result of our own actions and choices and the actions taken upon us. But the bottom line is that we are where we are. And that means that from today on, we each have our own starting place along the path. In addition, we each will experience our own distractions and mists of darkness. Satan knows us, and he wants us. He will do everything in his power to divert us from our goal. He wants to destroy our purpose. Now, in order to help us really understand where we are in relationship to the purpose our Heavenly Father has laid out for us, may we take a few minutes to consider some questions. Each of us must answer these questions for ourselves, and then we will know how we need to adjust our lives. I would invite you to write down the thoughts that come into your mind, because that will be personal revelation coming through the Spirit just for you. The first question, where am I along the path that leads to the Savior? Am I even on it? Do I have both feet firmly planted, or is one foot on and one foot off? Elder Maxwell described it this way. I quote, 
Some people know they should have their primary residence in Zion, but they still hope to keep their summer cottage in Babylon. Now remember, the path consists of making and keeping covenants. It includes the ordinances of the gospel and faithfully keeping the commandments. There are no shortcuts, no easy routes. Each we must all just place one foot in front of the other over and over again until we have traveled the whole distance. Being born into this world is one of the greatest blessings we have ever been given. In fact, it is absolutely necessary to our continued progression. But being in the world is also our greatest danger. There is only one way to make it through, and that is to stay on the straight and narrow path. Now, Chances are that you have made quite a lot of progress along the path at this point in your life. You have most likely been baptized. Most of you young men have received the priesthood. You may have served missions. Many of you have been endowed in the temple, and many have been married for time and eternity. So you have made covenants. Making them is the first step. Now, how well are you keeping them? Just remember, taking the first step is not of much value without the second, and that is keeping our covenants. For example, are you as worthy to renew your covenants of baptism as you partake of the sacrament each week as you were to be baptized in the first place? Are you as worthy to hold and use the priesthood as you were when you received it? This is where the iron rod comes in handy. It keeps us on the path. Because the iron rod is the word of God, it helps strengthen us to stay true to the covenants we have made. It helps us set righteous patterns. And keeping the commandments is easier if we have these righteous patterns of behavior. I'm talking about the simple things—morning and evening prayer, reading our scriptures, fasting, attending the temple, going to all of our church meetings faithfully, keeping the Sabbath day holy, honoring our parents, honesty and integrity, modesty and chastity—all righteous patterns. If we stay true, being responsible, working hard, repenting, these righteous patterns become a way of life. Now, by suggesting that these patterns of righteous living are simple, I am not necessarily suggesting that they are easy. It is a continual process of trying, stumbling a little, picking ourselves up and making corrections in our lives. Trying again. Coming to the Savior requires continual coming. Now, the next question I would like each of us to ask What are my myths of darkness? Satan knows each of us well. He knows each of our strengths and he knows our weaknesses. Satan knows how to press our mortal buttons, and believe me, he is doing it at every opportunity. The way he tries to get me may be different from the way he tries to get you, but he is very good at finding our weak spots and hitting hard. What is it for you? 
Maybe it's discouragement or self-doubt. Maybe it's laziness. Or it could be influencing you to let a healthy curiosity lead you to doubting your own convictions. Maybe the mist is procrastination, or it could be anger. It could be allowing Satan to gain power over you through horrible addictions to substances or pornography. Satan also uses the voices from the great and spacious building to try and distract us from our chosen course. What voices do you hear calling to you? Is it pride or a love of worldly things and worldly pleasures? Is it encouragement to compromise your standards because everyone is doing it or that no one will know? Or is it a voice telling you that you can do something wrong today and still get blessings by repenting tomorrow? Do you ever hear a little voice in your head saying, It's no big deal? These are most certainly voices that come from the world. They are voices that want to make us act beneath ourselves. They are voices that come at us incessantly, ever trying to pull us off course. Think about what your myths are. What are the voices of the world that seem to be the hardest to ignore? Identifying them will help you to recognize when Satan is attempting to influence you. And to be assured, you do not have to battle him alone. You have a better voice to listen to. It comes as a gift from Heavenly Father. It is the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is not a loud voice, but it will pierce your very soul if you let it. It will tell you all things you should do. It will help you discern between the voices of the world and the voices of righteousness in your lives. It will help you clearly see through the mists of darkness. Live worthy to always have the Holy Ghost with you. He will help you hang on to that rod of iron. This leads me to the next question. How tight is my grip on the iron rod? We already know that the iron rod is the word of God. We find the word of God in the scriptures, and we hear it from our Latter-day Prophets. We also know that it is by holding on to that word of God or the iron rod that we are able to withstand the temptations of Satan and stay on the path that leads to the Savior and to eternal life. Now, this is pretty important, and so the question, how tight is my grip? This is not just a casual, run-my-hand-along-it-to-keep-my-balance kind of thing. We have to hang on as though our lives depended on it, because, in fact, our eternal lives do. We may begin the process of holding to the rod at a very young age, when hopefully our hands are placed there by those who love us. But in reality— We begin whenever we begin to make decisions for ourselves. We begin as we learn the truths of the gospel and begin to feel the stirrings of the Spirit witnessing to us. We continue as we learn and grow, as we make covenants of baptism, receiving the priesthood, endowment, temple marriage. We do this as we make sure that the words of the Lord, the scriptures, And the words of the prophets and the whisperings of the Spirit have a greater place in our lives than any other influence. And then 
we can be safe. We just have to hang on to that rod, literally, because if we ever let go, thinking, I'm not very far away, it's just right over there, we might find that we are on a very slippery slope, or someone may be hanging onto our ankles, or we might be too tired or too weak. We might be further away than we realize. No, we cannot grasp it casually. We have to hold tight, determined to never let go. This is the hand of my 93-year-old mother. She never let go of the rod. Just a few weeks before she passed away, when she was unable to stand or walk or really do anything for herself, her one desire was to have the bishop come to her bedside so that she could renew her temple recommend because hers had expired. She received that recommend. You can see that her hand naturally curved around the rod. It had grown that way over many years of practice. I hope that one day my hand will look just like hers. And I believe that we can actually get to the point that we no longer grasp the rod out to the side like this. Instead, that rod of iron will run right through us, keeping us upright, strong, and safely secured. Next question. Now, this one has everything to do with how well we stay connected to the rod and to the path, and this is it. How do I feel about being strictly obedient? If our purpose in life is to stay on the path that leads us back to the Savior and ultimately back to our Father, then we're going to have to come to terms with the principle of obedience. First, we must understand that Heavenly Father did not give us the commandments in order to control us. He gave them to us so that we might remain free from the bondage of Satan. Every commandment is designed to bring us happiness and the blessings of heaven. We can see that over and over again as we read the scriptures. Whenever Heavenly Father gives us a commandment in the scriptures, there is always a promised blessing. For example, in Mosiah 5 and 15 we read—now listen for that commandment and that promise— I would that ye should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, that Christ the Lord God omnipotent may seal you his, that ye may be brought to heaven, that ye may have everlasting salvation and eternal life. The commandment, be steadfast and immovable in good works. The promise, the Lord will seal you his, bring you to heaven, give you salvation and eternal life. Heavenly Father will bless us as we are obedient to his commandments. I know that this is true. What it comes down to is whether or not we will give ourselves over to him and be obedient. It is our choice. President Ezra Taft Benson said, When obedience ceases to be an irritant and becomes our quest— In that moment, God will endow us with power. Brothers and sisters, let us learn to love obedience and its rewards. 
Our next question is important because it is directed at helping us to do these things. And the question is, how can I strengthen my ability to hold to the rod? We have to somehow take what we know in our heads and sink it deep in our hearts and then express it through our actions. And it takes a lot of faith to do this. It takes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to really know in our hearts that He is the Redeemer of the world. We have to know that to come to Him is the goal and purpose of our lives. We have to know that He lives. We have to know these things way down here, deep in our hearts. Then we have to have hope. Now, hope is trusting that all that Jesus Christ did for the world applies to each of us individually, or in other words, that it will work for me. We have to trust that He knows us, that He loves us, that He will help us, and that His Atonement was made for us individually. Hope also means that we have to believe that we are worth it. It means that we understand that we each have a great value because we exist. We are Heavenly Father's children. We can disappoint them, and we are held accountable for our actions. But they still love us. It is as simple as that. And because of that love, we can trust that the Atonement will work for us. That is what is meant to have hope—hope that we can start where we are, repent if we need to, and get back on the path that leads to the Savior. Hope that we can make it. Now, faith and hope give us strength. They give us the power and confidence to keep on going, to keep holding on, even when things get hard. You know, everyone's life is hard. Some days it's harder than others, but life is hard. It was meant to be that way so that we would have to rely on the Lord. It was designed to make us strong and determined. When we have faith and hope, we can hold fast to the rod, and if we find that we have become distracted or have lost our grip, we can repent and grasp it again. The iron rod, the word of God, the pathway back to the Savior will never move. We may move, but we can know that we can always return because it will always be there for us. The Savior will always be there for us. And then— If our faith and hope are genuine, we can't keep it contained. We cannot keep it to ourselves. We reach out to others with the same love that we're receiving from the Father and the Son. The expression of our faith and hope, then, becomes charity. And all of this—faith, hope, and charity—is what brings joy into our lives. It is what gives us the strength to stay on the path, to stay connected to the iron rod. And the journey back to our Father, back to the Savior, Jesus Christ, becomes joyful. Learning about what Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ want us to do 
working hard to hold to the rod, making keeping covenants, faithfully living righteous lives, facing hard times as trials come, serving others, repenting for our mistakes, and feeling ourselves draw ever nearer to the Lord, all can become joyful. All of these things are fruits of the living tree. They are the blessings of the Atonement offered to us from the Father through the Son. And the ultimate blessing is eternal life and exaltation, living with our Heavenly Father forever. We each have to reach this place individually. We all hope to have a companion by our side who is making the same journey with the same destination in mind, but we each have to make it. The last and possibly the most important question is this. Will I do it? Am I willing to do all that is necessary to return to Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father? We have our agency. We decide whether or not we will hold fast to the iron rod and stay on the path that leads us back to the Savior. But we must remember that, ultimately, we all will be brought to kneel before the Savior. And at that point, He will be our judge as well as our Savior. If we have been faithful in this life, we will be blessed. But He has also told us that if we are not faithful and obedient, we will have to enjoy that which we are willing to receive because we were not willing to enjoy that which we might have received. Then he goes on to say, For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. When we kneel before the Savior, will we kneel in fear and sorrow and regret because we did not live to receive His greatest blessings? Or will we kneel before Him with great joy and gratitude in our hearts? Will we accept of His great love and look forward with great anticipation? The gift has been given. It lies before us. Will we receive it? What is required of us might seem overwhelming to many of us. It may look too hard to do, at least consistently. But we can do hard things. And when we do, we find that they become delightful to us. And what once was hard becomes easier in the doing. Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, want us to succeed, and so they will help us every inch of the way. Through the Spirit, they will lead us along. They will strengthen us. Jesus Christ will be our advocate with the Father. And after all we can do, He will make up the difference. Don't be discouraged if you've made mistakes. The Atonement was made for us because the Lord knew that we would need it. We all would need it. He wants us to use it, to repent, to find comfort, to reach peace, to be strengthened. Brothers and sisters, the plan has been laid out clearly for us. The Savior has trod the very path He asked us to follow. He stands before us, beckoning us to come to Him. I know that we can do it. He truly lives. 
He loves us. He is our Savior and Redeemer. Hold tight to that rod of iron. Be true to everything that you are and everything you can become. It is so worth it. It will bring you joy and happiness now and forever. It will bring you full circle back to Him. I know that this is true. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Deepening Discipleship Through Obedience with thoughts from Scott D. Whiting and Cheryl C. Lant. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.